G'day and welcome to GradChat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's GradChat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Now, I must let our listeners know that part of the appeal for GradChat is to give our graduate students the opportunity to showcase their research. Usually, though, the dissemination of their work is to people who are also in the same field. And so you can do that talk with, you know, using field-specific jargon. The importance of coming on the show, however, is learning how to make their, that research interesting to the rest of us, which is not an easy feat. So, so that we too can understand the importance of their work and want to know more. Now, as I said, it's not an easy task. So our students really have to rethink how they describe elements of their work. Now, I'm bringing this up t- today because I want to highlight the importance of GradChat as a learning tool. Um, so it's a learning tool, but it's also talking about research that is not easy to do. So today I'd like to introduce you to Kai Sullivan, who is doing a PhD in geological sciences under the supervision of Dr. Daniel Layton Matthews and Dr. Matthew Laybourne. Welcome to Grad Chat, Kai. Hi there. Nice to meet you. See what a lovely deep voice that is. Uh, Kai was wondering that his voice might not be radio radio ready, but it certainly is. So thank you for that. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. Now, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Kai, but my comments earlier was, was for everyone was because Kai provided me with an outline of his work that I struggled to understand without the help of a dictionary and Wikipedia. So I went back to Kai and asked for, for clarification, which he, of course, promptly gave me, which was fantastic. Thank you very much for that. You know, it's often our students aren't always thinking about the audience they're going to be talking to. So again, this opportunity to come on GradChat provides a valuable learning tool to our uh, to our students and uh, I think just from my first comments to Kai straight away he goes ah yeah totally forgot about that this is what I really mean so this is great so to your research Kai your research topic is postprandial zinc isotopic effect in human serum that's quite a title in itself but it is the research title which is why we're saying it can you give us a bit of an overview of what you, what your research is all about? So, first off, when we were mentioning an isotopic effect, we're talking about the distribution of naturally occurring stable isotopes. And in this case, we're measuring them in the a, a, a blood fraction within humans. So, the, it's a very new field. The first studies were in about 2010, studying the distribution of, uh, of isotopes of elements like copper and zinc and iron in human serum, which is the liquid component of, uh, of blood. And again, these are all naturally occurring. Often when you talk about medical applications of isotopes, people think of radioactive isotopes. This right. is not the case. These are all just natural abundances. That's it's interesting because I only mm. ever think of in blood apart from the plasma and things or in the serums is um, iron. I forget about some of the other elements that might mm-hmm. be in there. Yes, but uh, yeah, other uh, other metals are also mm-hmm. essential within humans, and uh, and we are just beginning to uh, to study how these uh, how the isotopes of these elements are being distributed in human systems and biological systems in general. Okay, so m- it was interesting. My first thought when I was, I read your that you're in geological sciences. 
And then I read your overview of your research and I went, what the heck does that have to do with geological sciences? Because it seems very medical to me, like maybe you should be in biomedical <laughs> molecular sciences, not geological sciences. So um, how do you get involved in medical research? Because there doesn't seem to be the obvious connection other than looking at different metals and... Mm-hmm. You're right. This is uh, this is brand new work for me as well because <laughs> I haven't taken a biology course since grade eleven in high school. So uh, my fir- my first few papers in this uh, in this topic, I had to Google almost every term. <laughs> it was a lot of fun to uh, to jump into a new field like that, though. But uh, I got involved in this uh, because I was I did my undergrad at Queens as well, and I was taking a fourth year course uh, that was also a grad course at the time with my uh, my late supervisor, Dr. Kurt Kaiser. It was called Isotopes in the Environment. And okay. he was a really, really versatile isotope geochemist. And he studied all sorts of applications. He did environmental work, ex- like mineral exploration work. He studied like bird migration, food adulteration, all sorts of topics. So in this course, he tried to cover as many of those as possible. Right. And a portion of the course was the students had to get, deliver a couple lectures on any given topic within isotope geochemistry. And through Kurt and I talking, we got onto these like weird medical applications that were coming out. Like you can use carbon isotopes in breath to tell if someone has uh, stomach ulcers. Like there's was, it was oh, very, right, very, very strange uh, mm-hmm. stuff coming out. So I got really interested in this and uh, did a bit of a literature search and found that there were papers out looking at copper and zinc isotopes as uh, biological markers of different types of cancers. Okay. So I chose to to give my lectures on on those applications. I thought those were really really neat, completely different from uh, from anything I had experienced in isotope geochemistry up until that point. So I, I dove right in and I got very interested and proposed a thesis topic to Kurt, and right. the rest is history there. But then, but then, why why register for still geological sciences and not biomedical yeah, or pathology so molecular? That's because uh, the the tool that we use is called mass spectrometry. Okay, yes. So basically, it's a it's a tool that was created for earth sciences primarily, studying these isotope ratios. And then only since this has been used for uh, for other applications, such as this, like usually or before it was used to study geological processes. And it was only in, a, or in the 1990s that the instrument started getting accurate and precise enough to, to measure really, really low concentrations of like transition metal elements like copper and zinc. So that's, that's when it kind of opened up to, to many different... Different, uh, different applications. So, but you can only use that if you're in geological sciences. <laughs> so it's it's. You think it's, it's, it's a very it's, it's very it's very multi multidisciplinary. Right. Yeah, like okay. chemists use it for a, a wide variety of topics as well. So, with your work, are you actually some of your? I mean, I know you got your two supervisors, but does your committee have people on it from? Some of the health. Yeah, we've got health. we partnered with the the head geriatrician at Providence Care Hospital. Okay. Uh, Dr. John Puxty, he helps us with all things medical advice in that direction, and <laughs> also uh, also sample collection. We have a very helpful nurse out there. Who, right. They help us recruit patients and, and collect samples. And we also have a chemist or someone in the chemistry department on my committee as well, and biology department. So we've kind of assembled this crack team of. So it's really multidisciplinary. Yeah, what yeah, you're yeah, to yeah, do, which yeah. Which is great. I think there's a lot more research going in that way, where it's not just this is my area. No, no one's going to touch it. It's very much. Mm-hmm. A collaboration going on these days, isn't it? Across that's right. Across yeah, and we, we we certainly recognize the areas that we aren't as familiar with, and right, and that's recogni- that recognize you. the need for for these other researchers that bring in a bunch of different knowledge and uh, and context. So, 
Part of your topic was postprandial zinc isotopic effect in human serum. So for, for people who don't know, what does postprandial mean? So that means uh, after eating. It's a very fancy word that I also had to learn when I, uh, <laughs> I, I was very lucky. It was, it was very tough to do a literature search on this because when we take samples, we want to make sure that we're getting the, the best representative sample from someone. So we want to know if things change with different factors like, like eating meals based or like based on your, your age or, or menopausal status, your sex. So another factor like that is do your zinc concentrations or isotopic compositions change when you eat a meal? And I stumbled across a paper that found that your zinc concentrations in serum decreased by as much as 20% in the couple hours after having a meal. Oh, really? And because we're getting into these biomarker studies, these metals in humans, it's now very important to see whether or not there is an isotopic change after having a meal because we want to make sure we are getting those best representative samples from people. So it looks like we need to, like, because the zinc isotopic or zinc concentration changes after having a meal, the best time of day to take a serum sample would be in the morning in the fasting state. Hi. So now we're confirming because of that massive concentration change after having a meal, it's very likely that there is a change in the abundance of the two main isotopes of zinc that we're going to be measuring, zinc 66 and 64. Depending on the, the bonding environment of how this metal is used, the distribution will slightly change according to that. So we now, we're, we're going in, we're, we're measuring these isotopic compositions and seeing if there is that, that change. So what if there is a change? If the zinc isotopes are changing, first of all, what is the zinc isotope for other than perhaps a bio biomarker? I mean, what's the importance of zinc in our bodies, I guess? And what's the importance if we don't have it? Yeah, so it's a, an essential micronutrient. It's got quite a high concentration. It, it's used in hundreds of enzymes, actually. So it's got a lot of functions within the uh, the human body that are that are essential. And it's also used, like I was mentioning, these these medical applications. It's also, if you look at Alzheimer's disease, it gets accumulated in the plaques that people form when they have Alzheimer's. It's also accumulated in uh, in tumors when you have cancer. So it's an important element in a, in a lot of different processes. And what what isotopes are useful for other than you know, like you can you can go in and, and measure concentrations in these different tissues, but those don't tell you anything about the processes involved in their accumulation. Meanwhile, isotope their compositions are linked to processes. Like one process might lead to an accumulate a preferential accumulation of the heavy isotope of zinc, and by heavy I mean zinc sixty six versus zinc sixty four. And because the, 60, is sixty six better than sixty four? You want to? It's not. A, it's 66? not. A, it's not about better or worse. Oh, it's just no. Better. It's just about the, the the sort of natural distribution that occurs depending on the bonding environment. Like, okay. I'll give an example. So zinc 66 versus 64, we, we call 66 the heavy one, will preferentially accumulate in stronger bonded molecules. Meanwhile, zinc 64 will be preferentially accumulated in weaker bonded molecules. So if I'm understanding this correct, because one of the things you're looking at is these isotopes as biomarkers for potentially detecting... Mm certain diseases if you're using them as biomarkers mm. so you looked at zinc 64 and 66 so what are you saying then as a biomarker if their ratios change that could mean that that particular person could potentially get alzheimer's or no they potentially have it 
Well, they already in, have in the, it. In, oh, the case okay. of, in the case of Alzheimer's, you'll actually be developing plaques for sometimes a couple decades before you show any uh, any clinical symptoms, but you're developing those that pathological symptom. That's why this is a perfect tool because we'd be comparing the isotopic compositions of a healthy control group with this Alzheimer's group. Thanks. So you'd, you'd be detecting a small change in the, the, the ratios of these two isotopes to each right. other as a result of- Of getting uh, Alzheimer's. Of growing those plaques and those and those isotopes being used at slightly different preferences. So the isotopes themselves then aren't prevent necessarily preventing or anything. It's no, just no, it's just a natural byproduct. Just a, right. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they just naturally get distributed differently depending on the different bodily processes involved. And so that'd be the same, for instance, one of the other markers you were talking about was like breast cancer mm-hmm. and things. So once again, the, the marker or the, the isotope, it's not the market, it's the isotopes, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The ratio of the isotopes has changed. Mm-hmm. That's and right. And so does that change mean that the person has breast cancer? that change mean, no, they died? I mean, it could still be the other the way, couldn't it? It could be status quo. It could be, mm-hmm. yes, you're, you've actually got it. Or no, it's just that's the way your body is. Yeah. So we, it's hard we, to know what's the, if the ratio is higher or different. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> Well, there, one of the complications is that biological system in general, mm-hmm. there are so many variables you have to control for, but that's why we can we control for as many of those can, uh, that we can. Right. And then just compare people who are, are healthy and presumed healthy with those who have the disease, but no other complicating factors, because right. perhaps other diseases that someone has could cause slight changes in their isotopic compositions within their, uh, within their serum as well. So this mass spectrometer then, so obviously I imagine the health the health group that you've got are very excited that you're able to use the mass spectrometer to find out some of these levels of isotopes. Because it's a very early, it's in a very early stage, this field, we're still currently trying to get collaborators and get other disciplines excited about this work and show the show the, the uses of our, yes. our work to them. Right. Kind of sell ourselves to, to them and, and show why we have merit. And, and the ways that this can be used, because you don't come across this type of work when, no. you're, when you're in the medical field. You, like, you just don't get exposed to that. So they're a bit skeptical. Yeah, because I know, so, I mean, trying to find various markers for various diseases has been an important part of mm-hmm. health research. Find yeah. out, is the marker saying yes or saying no? And, you know, mm-hmm. which way is it going? Yeah. And so is, is, is being there a good thing or being there a bad thing? <laughs> So there's lots that you're right. There's lots they can do. But talking about some, looking at some collaborations and that, I understand you're currently on the Kimberley Foundation's Hugh C. Morris Experiential Learning Fellowship. And as most people know, getting some grants or fellowships to help with research is really, really important for all our students because it makes it makes things a lot easier, gives them a bit more money to help put towards their research to get some more collaborations going. So what is the story behind the fellowship and what impact is, is it having on your experience as a PhD student and with your research as well? Yeah, so the fellowship is an amazing opportunity that I've had this year. About last uh, January, I applied for this. I mentioned it's the Hugh C. Morris Experiential Learning Fellowship. It's put out by the Kimberly Foundation based in Vancouver. This is the first year that they've actually awarded it. Oh, fantastic. They awarded it to a few students, actually. We have one 
master's student, I believe, from U of Calgary, and actually another uh, geologist in uh, in my department at Queens. That's great that we got um, two of them then. Yeah, very good, very good news for the uh, the department. So fellowship is uh, actually modeled after the experience that another PhD student back in the, the late 50s, Hugh Morris, had. He uh, he actually gained a fellowship that allowed him to travel to North America from South Africa and visit 65% of all the mines here. Okay, right. So he had a uh, he went on to have a, a great career after that, and this fellowship has been started to sort of carry on that legacy, and the, the model is sort of after that for students to go out into the the real world and, and gain experience that will help them in their in their future okay. careers. So with yours then, because at the moment you're you're getting your data f- I, from Kingston, or is it nationally? And do you need to go to other places in in Canada? to do these experiments, but you're not always going to have those mass spectrometers or you're just taking blood samples and bringing them back. How does that work? <laughs> Part of this has actually been, I've been traveling and doing work at different labs. Okay. So I decided with the the first component of my fellowship, I, well, I wanted to visit three labs. So there's, there's one, there was one in Tokyo, Japan. Okay. They are a theoretical research group theoretical chemistry research group so I was in way over my head but uh, the way the way that isotope geochemists interpret their data is through the work of these theoretical chemists okay. they'll sort of model based on the different reactions mm-hmm. what the isotopic fractionation will be so you can do that for uh, for a number of different processes like people have done like they've done modeling for bonds between like zinc and different amino acids so that that forms like the foundation of how we can interpret isotopic data that okay. we measure in humans so they so they came help come up with the model that you're using now? Yeah, I, I cite that data in my work, but that's the, the best way to interpret your isotopic data. Right. I thought it'd be really important to, to get an understanding of how they do their work and yes. and sort of build a relationship with them because it'd be really important in the future, I think, for me, in terms of potential collaborators. We can we can find ways to help each other because they they do all this modeling, right. but then they need people to go and do the experiments to sort of validate that modeling. Right, yes. So you can, you can have a really, really good partnership that way. I feel so. I spent about a month there learning from them. Nice. It's a really, really good experience. Uh, very challenging. I was <laughs> way over my head, but came out of it with like just. Well, uh, obviously, you come back with something that you can use, which is exactly, good. exactly. And, and what, I, what, is, what are the other places you've been? To? All fall, I was at Imperial College London. Okay. And I was working with a professor called Mark Rocamper there, and he was actually. I mentioned that when I was in fourth year, I. I presented on uh, some of that, that breast cancer biomarker work that really got me fired up. So when the, when this opportunity with the fellowship came up, I decided to reach out to Mark about working with him for a few months. Right. I went over there and worked with his uh, his great postdoc, Becky Moore, and I got to sort of work on the conclusion of this paper that measured it, zinc isotopes in a bunch of different tissues in humans. We measured like healthy breast tissue, benign tumors, malignant tumors, and serum to kind of get a whole view of the system that they right. were dealing with. Right. So that guy, I guess, then helps hone you hone in for you what you need to do in your own experiment it does and it's just great great to work with some some international researchers mm-hmm. get out there get into different labs because I've, I've i've been at queens it's an amazing facility but now i have experience in working with different people international which is great which is all part of that networking. and exactly and and we'll be publishing some papers together as well that's good so it's just a it's been an overall a great experience for me i've learned a ton they use techniques that i hadn't used yet at that point so overall amazing experience over there and i'm, I'm really looking forward to the next few months as we begin writing these papers together so the third part of my fellowship is i'm currently at the national research council canada they've got 
Measurement and Standards Institute. So I thought it very interesting to get an idea how isotopic standards are certified. So when we measure isotope ratios for most applications, we are measuring the relative ratios. We're measuring relative to a certified isotopic standard. Okay. So, and so Canada has a, a standard? Does, uh, there are institutions around the world that develop isotopic right. standards. But the thing is, we want our results you measure in one place to be comparable to what researchers measure around the world. So yes. you, you develop an isotopic standard, like a material that you can measure the, the same value repeatedly in, no matter where you are, so it's very homogeneous. Right. And then for your lab, you can purchase this material and you can measure it on your instruments, on your mass spectrometers, okay. and get the value that those certifying authorities have said that this is the true value of this material. Then you try and reproduce that at your lab so that you know that you're actually getting very accurate very results. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that must be fascinating, though, to get all that. And that would certainly help you what you're doing here. This fellowship, I know it's a new one, but who can actually apply for the fellowship? While Hugh Morris was a geologist, they've kept it open to a bunch of different fields. That's why I, while I'm investigating medical applications of isotope geochemistry, that's why I've been able to apply for this and go do a bunch of bunch of lab visits. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's actually open to students, obviously, in earth or geological sciences. You also have water sciences, alternative energy, climate change, sustainability, uh, environmental studies like life design or engineering sciences, uh, social impact assessments, social sciences concerned with uh, environmental sciences or, or earth sciences, and design sciences concerned with any of these areas as well. Great that you've done that, particularly as your topic kind of crosses over into other areas too. Mm-hmm. It crosses over into the human anatomy. So it's really important that even with what you're doing, you are still able to apply for something like this because of the other part of your research. And mm-hmm. you mentioned here with some of the work that you're doing, you're getting um, these using the mass spectrometer and, and looking at the isotopes and uh, this particular, in particular the zinc isotopes, where are you getting your subjects to get this from? Is it from Kingston General? <laughs> yeah, so, or is it something they, they were already doing? It was no, easy, no, or? no. What's kind of fun about this is we're looking at the effects in serum in zinc after you eat a meal. So yes. you, you, we need healthy subjects. So we've actually right. recruited just like people we know through the uh, the oh, lab yeah, okay. and and, right. and like fellow colleagues, friends. Yeah, well, I, I've they, even I've even they taken were, they were friends. Yeah, I've even <laughs> taken my own samples. You know. <laughs> okay, now that's desperate taking your own. <laughs> yeah, it's easy. <laughs> so how many people? are you hoping to be able to test for, well, for to the, make it worthwhile for, well, for this the, particular topic? Yeah, for this topic, we've collected all of our samples already. We, we took three samples from 10 subjects. Okay. So we have 30 samples. We collected one in the fasting state, another about an hour and a half. They have to fasting. They then had a, a meal in the morning after we took that sample. And then we took an a sample an hour and a half after that. Right. And then a further hour and a half past that. So we can see, okay, this is what they're like in the morning before they've had a meal. Yeah. This is the condition that we'll likely have to collect our samples in. And then we sort of were monitoring the changes in uh, in serum as you have that meal. And then as it goes back to its its baseline value as, as you right. approach three hours. Because the, the peak response, peak like zinc concentration decreases at about two hours. So we just mm-hmm. want to get an idea whether or not this effect is happening isotopically. So what made you think, with the work that you've done so, this will help, that the zinc isotopes will be able to be used as a biological marker to detect things like breast cancer and Alzheimer's? What, what, why did you think those two? Or is it just two that are more well, obvious that that's people a, That's understand? a good question. Because so it's looking like any time there's metal dysregulation involved in a disease, we're all about process with isotopes. Right. So if there's metal dysregulation involved, it could be surmised that there would also be a 
potential isotopic effect along with there. Like I've mentioned with Alzheimer's, you accumulate zinc in the plaques. You also accumulate copper in the plaques as the disease develops, just like you also hyperaccumulate zinc and copper in breast cancer tumors. When so I started, they, were, they seem like two obvious ones. Yeah, so they? I actually started my project being interested in seeing if you could use copper and zinc isotopes as biomarkers of Alzheimer's. Okay. But then I got reading further and found that we don't have some very fundamental things answered about the field yet, like this. Do, do mm-hmm. we have changes in zinc composition after having a meal? So I think before you can dive into complicated questions like that, you need to know that you're collecting the the best representative sample. Right. So that's that's why I've kind of made this the core focus of my my thesis right now. Which I think is really important because you've got to start somewhere yeah. as at the as yeah. the baseline, I was, like you said. Yeah, I was very interested in diving right into like a really neat disease to study. It's very right. important, you know, like the the population's getting older and older. People are living longer. More people are developing Alzheimer's. So it's very important to detect this disease, and there are currently no right. validated biomarkers for it. So it's it's highly relevant. But before something like that can really be done. You need to know you're getting the, yeah, the you best sample. The, you have to have the best sample. You also need to know what's the best testing. Yeah, because so this testing is going to work. Because yeah, depending on timing. Like if you if you take a sample from one person an hour after they've eaten a meal, or two mm-hmm. hours after they've eaten a meal, or three hours, that could completely change their results, regardless right. of whether they're healthy or right. whether they have a disease. So the method of testing, yeah. the, the model that you're going to produce, will help down the track. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, depending on when you yeah. have to take the serums. So, which is, it's good to, I mean, those things are vital to make sure that we can get to the next step. Exactly. I, I think this is an important step that needs mm-hmm. to be taken care of before you can really advance the field. And I think you've done the right thing too, where, you know, you, you said you went to Japan and you learned about the modeling part of things, mm-hmm. which is going to be super, super important for this. And then your work you did in London as well. So mm-hmm. huge job though. Yeah. Huge <laughs> job. <laughs> not, not, too much, not too much free time these days. No, I bet not. <laughs> but you do have a bit of free time because I understand. I'm just going to throw this in because I think this is an absolute classic. You like to play the bagpipes. I do. And it's not <laughs> just because he's at Queen's, but apparently you've been doing this for a long time. Well, actually, I, actually, I did take it up when I initially got to Queen's. Oh, it was? Yeah, oh, I, okay. I played in uh, Queen's bands for a few oh, years. there you go. An original <laughs> Queen's Probably bender. never going to be able to get a job at the government after admitting that, but no. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's fantastic that you get a chance to do, to oh, do something it, like this, something totally different. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a really great hobby. Uh, you meet people from all like sorts of backgrounds and right. whatnot, too. Like I, I got like really involved in the, the community here by joining the uh, the Rob Roy Pipe Band. Fantastic. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, they're, they're pretty visible in the community. Really nice group. So made but, most of my best friends out of there here. That's yeah. great because yeah. there's not many places you can go. In, in, in Kingston without hearing a bagpipe or two. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if, if, if I ever hear one around like campus or around downtown, I like 99% of the time. You know I, them? Yeah. Or even just based on like what they're playing or like the tuning phrase that they so play before, you, you can, you you can been, sort of tell who it is. So have you been one of those buskers I see sometimes? I, a few years back, I did do that. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I was, I was doing better doing that than actually a full-time job I had. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. That's awesome. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very, uh, very good instrument to play in Kingston. You know, there's it a is. big, uh, big uh, yeah. Scottish background here. You actually here. really fit in, fit yeah. in really well with that. So, and I guess you would have had to buy your kilt and everything. Fortunately, the band provides that. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Right, so you didn't yeah. have to keep it. Yeah, you get, you get your own, in, you, you buy your own instrument, but you can right. actually, through the busking and, and uh, playing at funerals and weddings right. and all sorts of events, you can, uh, you can it's sort of like the one hobby that doesn't burn a hole completely in your pocket. <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. Well, Kai, apart from your bagpipes, 
your research is going to be very very important and and as you summarize very very nicely that this is you know you're putting together a procedure that can be used for then down the track to make sure we can do the testing correctly mm-hmm. to, to help with looking at alzheimer's and other diseases so very very important part of your research so thank you very much for coming on and telling us i still don't get the fact that you're a geological sciences do, scientist doing <laughs> this but who cares that's just the yeah, name I still have it? to, it's just the department well the thing is i still love geology yeah. again. Like <laughs> well you've got I, a few I, metals in there you got these zincs in your yeah, covers well, I, I, <laughs> I did my undergrad thesis in uranium exploration oh, well, and uh, I'll, be, I'll be graduating <laughs> in, uh, in about maybe just under a year and a half Fantastic. and i'm going to uh, looking to get back into other types of well, applications if, well if you can set up the ground work for future researchers to continue mm-hmm. on the work that you started uh, yeah. that's fantastic yeah, well it's, it's such a great field that i'm in mm-hmm. because you can go into all sorts of different multidisciplinary topics so yeah in the future very interested in getting back into mineral Good. exploration or environmental work great yeah. that's great because some of those might help us the fact why are we getting these diseases yeah. in the first yeah. place you know the environment as we see all that so once again thank you very much for coming on today really oh. appreciate it yeah thank you for having me i really good. appreciate that good good um hope it was the learning experience you were hoping for absolutely excellent because i learn every week this is what i love about my job doing this i learn yeah, it's got to be week. a lot of fun it is i learned so much just enough information to make myself look really intelligent out there <laughs> yeah, good uh, good dinner party discussion exactly i go oh i know something about that uh, so that's it everyone another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end don't forget you can download the podcast of this show tomorrow from the cfrc podcast channel just type in grad chat until next week this is cj the dj signing off with a big hooray. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.